This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we meet Lena Gottmer, the architect behind this year's pavilion at London's Serpentine Gallery. We also visit a 3D printing studio and research lab in Beirut. Plus, in Iceland, we catch up with Hannah Whitehead, a maker committed to working with hyper-local materials. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Open until the end of October, the Serpentine Gallery's annual pavilion in London's Hyde Park is now welcoming visitors. This year's structure, a table, is designed by French-Lebanese architect Lena Gottmer. The folly is inspired by Lena's Mediterranean heritage and lively discussions around tables, about current affairs, politics, personal lives and dreams. It also touches on themes of flexibility and sustainability in architecture. I went down to the Serpentine on a rather windy day, might I add, to discuss the project with Lena. 2023's Serpentine Pavilion rises up from Hyde Park's verdant landscape, sitting gently in the existing environment beneath the roofline of the Serpentine's southern building. For a lucky few, including Monocle, when we met Lena Gottmer, it can be viewed from the gallery's rooftop terrace. What we're looking at uh, at this uh, angle is a pleated roof uh, that is uh, like laying down horizontally on the landscape. It's kind of uh, like a pavilion that is in dialogue uh, with the gallery in which we are sitting now on the terrace because it kind of respects the gallery which still hovers above and that is higher than the pavilion itself. This pleated roof is allowing a reflection of the sun so we can see like different uh, colors and shades. It has these concave um, perimeters around that are echoing the canopies of the trees that we see uh, in in this park. If you're approaching the pavilion, now you can see uh, around uh, like a gallery space that is uh, composed of these uh, colonnade structure. And it's an open walkway that allows you to walk around and uh, look at the uh, adjacent uh, nature and have a shielded uh, area. From inside is a more intimate space and actually the emotional experience of this pavilion is an internal one. These principal beams and in between there are this uh, like transversal uh, structure that kind of holds the roof and it looks like this leaf tree. In terms of shape it reminds us how ingenuous nature is, how much we can learn from nature and that we are nature also because we're really in a continuity with the environment ourselves as human. We need nature to survive uh, inhabiting this planet. Built mostly from biosourced and low carbon materials, the predominantly timber structure has a light impact on the environment. This is also echoed in the lightweight yet sturdy construction, which made the building of the pavilion surprisingly straightforward. These are principles Lena believes can be embraced more broadly by the design community. The nature of this pavilion being uh, like a pavilion that has to be built fast, low, uh, low in its footprint, teaches one to be able to think fast and to be able to also react uh, in a more virtuous manner to the challenges of today. 
we have to learn uh, how to react fast and uh, even if we're reacting fast we're thinking in a more sustainable manner thinking about uh, assembly and disassembly as well because it has to be built in a fast manner it has to be very lightweight structure nothing wasted so we can reassemble it somewhere else and if we don't we can reuse the material i think also another thing that uh, I wanted to explore is rather thinking about architecture that is more um, maybe silent or maybe like related to its environment that can have an uh, like a rather uh, interior experience and that's what makes it spectacular. I think it's about really the experience that you can have within the pavilion uh, rather than just the photo that you make out of this pavilion. Called a tub. In reference to the French call to sit together at the table to share a meal, this theme of coming together in conversation is also echoed in the overall form, with the low roof taking inspiration from structures found in Mali, West Africa, that are traditionally used for community gatherings. And while the ambition for the pavilion is to provide a place for gathering, its function is also open to interpretation. Each visitor's own experience of the space is welcomed. I love when people come in and say, ah, but this is a yurt. Or someone says, this is a carousel. Or, oh, it's kind of feeling like a mushroom on the roof. This is because the project is born out of a lot of research. So it references, in a way, uh, a lot of other stories. It has its own memory. So in a way, it connects to people. And I hope it will continue to, uh, you know, to open one's imaginary into memories, in a way. Everyone is creative. Beyond that is also like sitting together, meeting the other, and maybe like socializing, enjoying the space uh, itself and having different activities. This ambition to have the space serve many different purposes also speaks to Lena's own practice and the deliberate effort to challenge conventions of what a building should and shouldn't look like. For proof, she points to her recently completed Hermes workshops, Situated in Normandy, this new brickwork architecture, replete with stunning arches and abundant natural light, challenges the notion that a factory should be a boxy and uninspiring build. I'm always wondering like, why a housing should look like a housing and why a museum is uh, only a signature building and why a factory has to look like a box of tin... Housing can offer something new to the city, can also be about uh, sensitivity, about uh, texture, about also inhabiting differently at every floor of it. Uh, Hermès building is an industrial building, but it doesn't have to look like a, like a factory space with uh, like a metal tin. It has to give a dignity back to this function. What was very important for Hermès was the well-being of people and how they feel comfortable working in such a place with the great values of such a house. The idea was to really develop this building that could be a museum, it could be a house, it could be a cloister actually, and it has these arches that are spanning along the envelope that invite you into an open courtyard that is open to nature. And then people inside feel so comfortable. Lena's work across the board talks to longevity, 
Whether it's a factory building that can have multiple lives across multiple functions, or a pavilion that can be readily taken down and rebuilt. When a building is able to have a mutability of functions, that's so important because our societies are evolving so fast. Today we, we do things in a certain way. Tomorrow maybe our uh, like houses will be also our offices, but also a place uh, for working, for craft, could be for artists. So, so it's kind of also allowing the space to be adaptable. When we're building, it has to be worthwhile doing. This pavilion somehow will be used here and someone will acquire it and will build it somewhere else and will continue to be used and to be uh, useful, actually, to, to its environment. The Serpentine Pavilion, a table is open until the 29th of October, 2023. Immerse yourself in the world of Monocle by visiting monocle.com. You can listen live to our radio station, subscribe to any of our podcasts, and listen back to a wealth of great programmes. Browse over 800 free Monocle films and slideshows, or visit our online shop. Oh, and you can take out that all-important Monocle subscription and browse our exciting digital editions too. It's all right here at monocle.com. What are you waiting for? We're off to Lebanon next to pay a visit to the team at Bits to Atoms. The company specialises in digital fabrication. It uses a range of production methods, including 3D printing, to make objects that vary in scale from chairs to large outdoor structures. Monocle's Marcus Hippie went to the Bits to Atoms studio and research lab to meet the company's director, Guillaume Credoz. He began by explaining how research is a key facet of his work. We're research-oriented, so we, we, we see what digital fabrication is bringing us as opportunities, constraints, and what it can change. So it's enabling us to become uh, craftsmen again, which means that people that know how to put together information on the computer can drive large robot arms in order to manufacture things. Suddenly, from someone who was working as an architect more on paper and plans, I became someone who draws a chair in my computer in the morning, builds it during the day because it, we print a chair in about an hour, and then I sit on it and I do it again and it's good enough. And this makes me a digital craftsman. That's a new take. We are back to the materiality, which is in fact the core of the designer and the architect's work. And that's what's great about it. And that's what drives us, I mean, the, the making aspect. How quick was that transition becoming a digital craftsman? I went during my studies into three universities that I chose because they had big workshops with machine tools. So I've always been into it. And I went from France to Canada to learn 3D with the first makers of the first softwares that were my teachers, they were the ones who coded the first 3D application. And that's how I began the first generation somehow of architects to do 3D. When I see 25 years ago, I did my first prints. I mean, when uh, my first 3D print, when it was still in the end of a few companies because of the patents. And that's where I discovered this huge potential to get back to what I liked through the potential of 3D design on the computer. Since I've been uh, working in that field, and it developed up to uh, that 2,000 meter square workshop. Shall we continue to your office meanwhile? Can you tell us what exactly you have in your, in your Beirut base over here? What, what exactly happens over here on a daily basis and what do you have over here? I see a lot of robots at least. 
We have many large robot arms from the automotive industry. We recondition them, we create the control box and we program them. So they could do both uh, additive and subtractive manufacturing. Some are carving wood, other ones are 3D printing recycled plastic or local clay. And the main action, the rest is happening behind the computers. But the fabrication is driven by those machines, plus a few 3D printers from laser to regular FDM. But the five robots we have are doing most of the action. So one term that people come across regularly is parametric design. Can you tell us more about that? By parametric, the fact is that we, when we have a design question, instead of answering just to the particular condition of this one, we leave some of the parameters of our answer open. For example, let's say we want to design a library and we have a space between two doors to do that library. Normally, you would design it for that width. But what you can do is that you can do your 3D within a program so that this parameter remains open. So if later on you have a larger space, you can still use the same design, you would just change that parameter and automatically your design will be updated. When you do a design, you take a lot of decisions, but some of them, thanks to the computers, can remain open and then it means this is parametric. It allows you to make a lot of research and variation because it could be the thickness of the walls of that library, the way it's cut, if it's perpendicular or at an angle. So you could leave many parameters open and then you can explore them to find the best design quickly and also you can open it to other people to to play with it. That's where it's interesting. Someone can measure his own distance between two uh, doors and then go inside of your app, use your code, adjust your design and ask it from you and then you would 3D print it and give it to that person. This is where we are going toward with peak post-industrial crafts. Instead of redoing the same work again and again, uh, when there's anything repetitive, they, they are of a lot of help. You can also share these things with fellow designers and I would imagine it also helps to cut waste, you know, you don't end up creating things that don't actually fit, for example, that doorway you were talking about. I mean, there are many circular loops in the system. I mean, the one that the most obvious in our office is the fact that we use local and recyclable material and that we do recycling ourselves. Inside of the code, there's a lot as well. And 3D printing, for example, that doesn't make waste because when you want to use wood, you're going to use a part of the plank and you will have leftovers. But 3D printing just use the right amount of material. There's no leftovers around it. And also, everything we 3D print as in large scale as, as furniture or building, uh, there's no finishing. The, the object comes out perfect. There's no paint or no extra polluting things that would, like sanding that would create dust or painting that would use a polluting industry. Tell me more about digital technology and what kind of possibilities it can offer to us. Everything that the computer do, we could do it by hand. There's nothing, we just that we could be faster and we could push it further. So when you start to do something a bit complex, at some point your brain cannot think of everything. But you've got to support with the computer because you built it in 3D and you can see it. So what you've built is there and you're adding on it. And this is because it's keeping alive all that memory, all the things you project, that it helps you. We can come back again to it, change it, evolve it and continue making it better pass it along, uh, the same way I teach and the same way we share stuff in collectives. Also, we design in here, but um, a good part of it is built on a robot which is closer to the destination. So we send the file and then we, uh, we have it manufactured closer, so we reduce the carbon impact. I like how you introduced yourself as a digital craftsman earlier. Tell me about the relationship between digital technology and craftsmanship at the moment. Do you think it's changing? Yes, and we are taking an 
even a, a notch further, and we are trying to be provocative, we talk about uh, digital minge. So minge means roughly art and craft, but it was coined by a Japanese philosopher about Asian art and craft things, especially ceramics. Everything that was done from local material, very simply from people who were not even signing it, usually mono-material and with a lot of sculptural quality, mainly because of this materiality. And we think we are reviving this. That, that's why we do that shock between those two words, Uh, digital and minge, which is supposed to be like uh, talking about a few centuries uh, earlier. And we think this is what we are doing. We are trying to be economic in terms of material and we are trying to make it all recyclable so that's why we are monomaterial again. Our practice is very much like those craft people at that time. We find ourselves a lot into that philosophy and that aesthetic as well. Uh, even if it has, uh, of course, changed, evolved and the materiality is different. We, we are craft people again, digital ones, but people. Is there still a competition between this digital approach and the traditional craftsmanship or do they just simply complement each other? So the other side of this is the designer which are only the head and that do drawing and then give it to a craft person and try to make it happen. So usually it's a very complex couple because the designer thinks he knows, the craft person thinks he doesn't. I mean, sometimes it can create something richer because you have two individuals which combine the best they can do and then you get something better. But uh, a lot of time as well, it's something a bit complicated that doesn't reach completely where it should be. And that costs more because the, the craft person would know how to use his tool to the best in order to get the best result and more straightforward or more optimal, whereas the designer is dreaming of something new without knowing everything about the technique, which is fruitful as well, because getting new ideas and is pushing them into someone else's world to create objects which are different. But it's not always a functional couple compared to the maker, who's both the designer and the craftsman. And that's a new rise thanks to digital fabrication. We have a new breed of maker which is coming, and that's exactly what we are about and what the collective uh, Beirut makers is, is about. Is there a risk of losing something essential, or does it go the other way around? When you think about the great qualities of traditional craftsmanship, do you think we may be losing something in this process? It's a complete evolution. We're completely based on when we do a wood furniture with the robot. To do that, we need first to master everything traditional and do it, and then even to finish it, it's all the thing again. It's just one more tool. So it's exactly the same craft. There's just one extra tool, which, which is that robot arm, uh, which is helping us to do it. Any craftsman dreams of having more tools, more and more intelligent, and that's where we're going. So, of course, we, we criticize the industrial revolution. We criticize the size of the industry and what they are producing. But at the same time, we use their apex tool, you know, the Tyrannosaurus Rex of the industrial revolution, which is a robot arm. And we took that, we diverted it, because its, its point was just to do the same little movement again and again, the fastest possible to produce more. This is why the, the robot arm were done. And now we use them to explore what we can do thanks to them. We completely hacked them. They were not supposed to be in the end of creative. They're supposed to be just for industrial that want to kick out uh, workers and save on his, on his production cost. And we hope that there could be a, a place in this economic world for uh, new digital craftsmen and women and that could work on this. Guillaume, let's also talk about a sister business that is based in France, Post-Industrial Crafts. It's, it's a small operation, but tell me about it. It's something we're preparing since two years in the Middle East. We've been exhibiting 
already in various places. Uh, but now it's open in the Cité du Design in Saint-Etienne, which is a very appropriate place for the rebirth of uh, industry and local industry because that's where it died in, in France. And now we are doing it again, but with the craft. So uh, post-industrial craft is about making furniture and structure 100% out of recycled plastic, which is 3D printed in very large scale with a very low resolution using those uh, used robotic arms that we renovate and we... we reconfigure uh, uh, to do that. So we are trying this out. We are trying to create production nodes close to the users that we use local plastic for local demand to create things which are all customized because most of our design are parametric at no extra cost with a delivery time that would be in a few days instead of months usually for the furniture industry as long as you want something a bit longer or a bit larger. Theoretically, it, uh, it takes a lot more time, whereas for us, not much. It will be computed by the code and just sent directly to the robot and then printed with a variation, but without much consequences, financially at least. Do you have some favorite examples of works by post-industrial crafts or by bits to atoms around the world that are being seen at the moment? Our rocking conversation chair, so we've been able uh, to make a, a DNA crossing of two typologies of design, the rocking chairs and the conversation chair. So one dates from Napoleon and these two persons which are sitting and face-to-face on the same chair. It was, for, uh, you say, seducing in social parties. And, and the rocking chair. So we've been able to, to put it all together into one tubular design, which is 3D printed with one single line. And so you have something that's very sturdy for outdoors. And they've been in a, in a few cities already. It's an active design. It's very playful. At the same time, very comfortable. Thanks to the fact that we don't have a mold in 3D printing, we've been able to update the design many times until we reach pure comfort. So we are not stuck into a shape. We can evolve it anytime. Every time we print, we can make it a little bit better. So eventually, we reach full ergonomy and perfect balance, so we've been able to do that. Let's talk about what's happening outside of this studio. I'm interviewing you in Beirut. When you think about what's happening, for example, with your company and what's happening with the design scene of Lebanon more widely, how tough have the recent years been? There have been many crises. We involved ourselves a lot in the revolution. We had a lot of hope that we could restart this from scratch and that it, uh, we could get something better, so we, we put ourselves inside of it. We did some design with the collective to help the protester, but then there have been the bank crisis, whereby the government uh, lost the money of, the, of all the banks. This turned not only all of our employees and our company's account to zero, but also our clients. So this has been very tough, and then there have been the explosion, of course, where we lost friends, uh, our home got demolished, etc. So this, this, was, this was quite uh, heavy. And uh, despite all this, we regroup. The good thing here is that um, the management is collective. So we do cake meetings at least once a month where we discuss everything. Everything is done in transparency. And we take the decision together. So we really faced that thing together. And we invented a way to go through it and to reboot and to find a way. And, we are finding a new balance. Of course, it's a lower balance. Uh, when you have only one hour of electricity a day, it's not as glorious as it was before the crisis, but we found uh, an equilibrium. But that's also why we opened in France, in order to have a kind of a safe place somewhere and not being the two feet on the same country, but have one in each country so we have more chance of stability. What about the future of, of Lebanon and Beirut's design scene? What do you expect? Do you feel optimism? 
There's a little optimism in the way that recently we got a few more hours of electricity per day. But that's the only positive thing I can see. There's a lot of help. The, the Beirut makers, the collective, uh, people have more time because of crisis to, uh, to put themselves into it, less budget. It's harder to find fundings. Our company stopped education as well. We were uh, having a lot of both long-term uh, interns, both short-term from uh, professionals that wanted to move to digital fabrication. And this we had to stop, but we hope to, uh, to reboot it. But we need to find all the financial means to do it. We're regrouping. We're moving to a dollar economy as well, which we're rebuilding from cash. Uh, it's going to take some time. There have been a lot of help uh, from um, the Ready Hand, uh, House of Today. There have been some help for designers. They are grassroots anyway, so that's how they were born. So they will reborn from the, the same way, the same process, probably in order to, uh, to reach again some of their precedent activity. It's really tough. It's really tough. Guillaume Credo's In Conversation with Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Finally, over to Iceland to meet the designer Hannah Whitehead, who's best known for her ceramic works, which feature whimsical and organic shapes. In recent times, Hannah's practice has evolved to explore the use of hyperlocal materials. For proof, one only needs to look to the Icelandic designer's latest collection of homeware, Called Gentle Glow, it's partly made from wool and oat straw sourced from the back garden of her rural studio. We caught up with Hannah at the most recent edition of the Design March Festival in Reykjavik to find out more. I was always ordering everything from Reykjavik, ordering stuff from abroad, and I was just really excited to work with something that was just growing around me while I slept, just there, and that are really usable. And I thought that was um, maybe a much better way to work. There was some uh, crisis in ceramics during the pandemic. You couldn't, in Iceland for a while, get like a certain kind of yellow and stuff like that. So it did affect a little bit the, the whole chain. Being in the southeast of Iceland, it's quite isolated there. We're quite far away from everything. And I mean, in the winter, the roads keep closing and you maybe have a deadline and your material doesn't make it. So then I thought maybe it's just better to work with something that I have here instead of always being in a struggle to get everything to me. I used this uh, second graded wool from the farm and it's a wool that in Iceland mostly gets shipped away even because it's not used for the knitting yarn, which is the almost the only wool industry that's left here. It's too rough for that, so it's shipped abroad. So I wanted to do something with that wool, and I took it to the text. There's a textile lab in Blantos in the north of Iceland, and there's this amazing felting machine, and this rough wool is actually really good for felt. Put the wool through that and used my leftover like yarn scraps to color it and got this like really stiff industrial grade felt. And I thought like this is such a good somehow felt like almost a building material because it was so strong and stiff. So I thought maybe I can use it in furniture. So I made some cupboards where they are part of the cupboards. 
because we have so much wool in Iceland, but not wood. I think it worked. I'm very optimistic that you can use it for shelves and all sorts of things. Maybe not completely on its own, but with like wood as a support in it. The other material I was using was the, the oats. And I used it mainly for marketry, so it was more like I had an ornamental purpose in the furniture. Many people ask me if it was really like slow, but because I worked so much with ceramics, and there is always the wait. You wait for the material to dry, and you have to wait for it to go through first firing, glaze it, second firing. You know, it's just a long process. So this feels really fast. Take the straw, open it, flatten it, and glue it down, and it's done. It's just there immediately, in the moment. So that was very enjoyable. That's also why I work with many materials. I'm always waiting for something to dry. or So I jump to the rocks while the ceramics are drying, or I, I try to uh, keep myself busy. And when you're working with materials, you're really in the moment. And I think you get a bit addictive to being in the moment. It's such a nice place to be. city girl. I'm from 101 Reykjavik, but I moved there six years ago, so I'm still amazed by the nature. I'm still looking at the, you know, glaciers. I take like a bike ride from my home to my work, two kilometers, and it's just, I'm just surrounded by mountains. I'm just outside town, and I'm really inspired by that, and the birds and the flowers, and very, like, cliche things. But also there, I have much more time than I had in Reykjavik. When I was in Reykjavik, I had to be in traffic and stuff like that. But in Hub and the surroundings, there is not one traffic light. So you spend zero time like wondering which supermarket to go to. There is only one. I cannot run to the, you know, the mirror factory to buy a mirror. So I try to even there use like the mirrors I find in the flea market and build a cupboard around that. You get really resourceful when not everything is at your feet. Life is very simple, so you can put a lot of energy and time into work instead. Hannah Whitehead, and my thanks to journalist Moshe Lundstrom for conducting that interview. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.